Good morning, Antioch. Happy Father's Day. Wow, that was quiet. Happy Father's Day. There you go. Um, if you're new to us or visiting with us, we're so glad you're here. I'm confident that our Antioch family made you feel welcome. Um, we are a Bible-believing, note-taking church, so we come with high expectation that God is going to speak to us each week. So if you could pull out your Bibles and something to take notes with, it shows God our anticipation of hearing from him. It is Father's Day, and this is not a Father's Day message, but I have a brief encouragement for fathers. There's a lot of confusion out there about what it looks like to be a man right now. And I just want to say to you, at least from my opinion, a lot of it's junk. We need men who will be strong and who will lead their families. You don't need to be perfect, but you need to live on purpose. And so be faithful, be strong, be quick to admit when you're wrong, and then get back up again and lead your family and fight for people. There, that's my message. Happy Father's Day. It's an honor to be a father. Walk with it. Run with it. Okay, this week is the third week of our series, Only Jesus. Each week we are focusing on gifts that only Jesus could bring to us. Only Jesus because of the uniqueness of who he was and his holiness. Only Jesus in his power could give us these gifts. The first week, we looked at John's description of Jesus as the Logos and how John's choice of words communicated to the world in which he lived that Jesus was special. Jesus alone brought answers, clarity, understanding, and power to a very confused and searching world. Last week, we looked at the incredible gift of grace that Jesus alone could give to us. Yes, grace for forgiveness, grace to sustain us through any and every trial, grace for salvation. Yes, for eternal life, but also salvation for every minute of every day that we live on the earth. Salvation is an invitation for now as well as a destination for then. It's an it's invitation now as well as a destination for them. These gifts from Jesus are worth focusing on. So I'm going to encourage you that if you missed any of the last two, please go back and listen to them. You're going to want to focus on these great gifts that only Jesus could give. This week, another great gift. The gift that has been sought by virtually all of mankind since the beginning of time. That's a strong statement, but it's a gift sought by the religious, the philosopher, the leader, and even the scientist, a gift sought by men, by women, by fathers, by mothers, by sons, by daughters. It doesn't matter. All seek this gift. By those filled with gratitude and those struggling with pain and sorrow, seek this gift, a gift sought by the world, but that only Jesus could give. And that gift is knowing God. Knowing who God is. Please stand with me as we read the word of God together. I'm going to read one verse, but this topic is all through the scriptures, as we'll see. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Let me pray for us. 
Lord, that's what we seek. We seek what has always been sought, to know you, to see you, and to know you deep in the depths of our hearts and soul. Would you reveal to each and every one of us yourself in a new way through the face of Jesus here, now, this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Some of you know that I have the privilege of pastoring a beautiful ministry in Ukraine called Mission to Ukraine, or MTU. Mission to Ukraine started as a crisis pregnancy ministry, but has grown to meet medical needs, dental needs, and feed and clothe the poor. As the staff of MTU ministered to crisis pregnancy situations, they saw very quickly in their poor and struggling country that they also needed, after the baby was born, after that child was born to stand with the families. If they were going to serve them well, they needed to stand with them after the babies were born. And in doing that, they discovered a great need for families with disabilities. You see, Ukraine is a poor country, and although greatly improving, they are a country that lacked understanding, compassion, and therefore gave very little, if any, resources to help families with disabled children. So I remember watching a father when I first went to Ukraine and a bus pulled up and neither his wife nor his full-grown daughter could carry. And I watched in horror as he had to step down the bus, throw his mother over his shoulder, put her in a seat, and then go down, throw his daughter over her shoulder. And I was like, how can this be? No facilities, no help. And the lack of the help in their country led MTU beautifully to step into those needs. Families as disabled are often secluded, alone, and even confined to the flats for months and months at a time due to the fact that the government gives them the worst flats on the seventh floor of buildings that have no elevators. And therefore, as their children grow and become too large, the parents actually can't carry them the seven stories down to get them out of the flat. MTU started what was called the Great Mansion Camp, a camp where both the families and the children are housed and ministered to. I could tell hours of stories of the beauty of ministry, but suffice to say that it is at the Great Mansion Camp that I saw some of the most obvious displays of the kingdom of God, so much of the obvious displays of where heaven actually touched earth. By the end of each camp, the parents have been cared for. They have been fed, most likely like they have never been fed before, and they got what they need, rest. And maybe best of all, they get to watch as their children, who are normally ridiculed and abandoned and left by society, are played with, loved on, and taught. And by the end of the week, they are observing and they have seen things they've never seen before. They also do Bible studies all during the week to be able to hear about God. And for the, it's the only time in their lives that they are able to consider God for themselves and for their children. On the last day of camp, all the parents are brought together for a session that I, get, I am privileged to lead. The session is the time they get to ask any question they want about what they have seen and heard. A time that they get to ask any question they have about the Bible and about God. Without fail, every session that I've ever led, camp after camp, year after year, 
All the questions, although voiced a little bit with a little bit different words, are always the same. In some way, shape, or form, the questions come down to this. They would say to me, people are offended and ridiculed by our children. How does God feel about my disabled child? They would ask, how does God feel about me as a parent in the life that I now lead? They would say, the religious tell us that we're being punished by God. Is that why we're suffering? Does God know me? Does he care about how hard my life is? For over 20 years, 30 camps and 30 sessions with parents, every single time the session is about hurting people, asking, what is God like? Who is God? Each time I have sat before these parents and I've had to plead with God, what can I say to these parents? What do I know of suffering like this? How do I answer the questions that I know are coming my way. The Great Mansion Camp is an extreme example of a universal question that is on the heart of every man and every woman. The rest of us may have more coverings, more distractions, and even more resources to mend our wounds and cover our struggles. But in the end, at some point in every life, every human being longs to know the answer to these questions does God exist? What is God like? What does God think of me? Where is God in my questions and my struggles and my pain? At some point in life, at many points in life, and maybe growing into every point of life, the human heart longs to know who is God. Think about all that has changed in the human experience since it began. Think of all the material changes, technological changes, and the global experiences that now mean that we are more aware of what's going on around the world and more connected than ever before. So much has changed, and yet the longing for defining who God is and what he is like, that has not changed. Religion has changed. The definition of religion has changed. The number of people who claim to be religious has dropped. But what they are claiming is that they do not, they still, even though they say they don't, they aren't religious, they are still searching for something that is over and above their own human experience. I want to look at the human search for just a few minutes and I'm going to dive deep just, to, just for a few minutes. Hang with me for just a few minutes because there's a purpose in this. I need to look at the human experience and culture for just a few minutes. And I, to do this, I need to define a few terms. Theism. Theism is the belief in the existence of a god or gods, especially belief in one god as creator of the universe, intervening in it, sustaining a personal relationship with his creatures. That's theism. Atheism. Very simply is the opposite, a denial of God or of gods. Agnostics are a person who believes that nothing is known or can be known about the existence of God or his nature. 
So theists believe in God and are trying to discover and define that God. Atheists deny any higher power and believe we are simply material and self-directed. Agnostics don't believe that we can know anything about God or his nature. Interestingly, after all of the changes, all the technological advances, all the cultural changes, after everything that has changed, the Pew Research Foundation still says only 3% of the world claims to be atheists and 4% agnostic. There is a growing number of people who do not claim to be religious and do not know of God, but when you listen to their explanation, they do believe in something over and above the human experience. That leaves 93% of human beings claiming to be theists or at least acknowledging something or someone beyond our human existence. 93% of people believe in it, albeit they have countless definitions for God, but they believe in some kind of being above the human experience. A comment is needed here. There's a growing change among the people who believe in God or in some kind of supreme being. I'm going, I made up this term. This is not actually in Wikipedia, not yet. I made up this term. I'm going to call them enlightened theists. This is my term for the growing number of people who believe in God, but also believe that they get to define who God is. That group of people is growing more and more. They claim to know and they claim the ability and the, and the right to define him. You will know when you're in a discussion with these folks, and again, this is not to be mean. I'm just giving you an awareness of this. You'll know when you're in a discussion with these folks because you will hear comments often that start with, well, I think God or I feel God should. My God would not do that. Even if God is like that, then I choose not to believe in him. That is an enlightened theist who actually believes they get to define who God is. And there's a great bumper sticker that describes this. It says, God created us in his image and we have returned the favor. And that is funny and frightening. But there's a growing number of people who get to believe we, have to have in, we get to have input on defining who God is. I say without malice, but simply for awareness. It is amazing to me that although, and I need you to listen to this part because I want to prepare us for this. Because there's so many discussions that, that are like this about I feel, I believe. Even though we Christians have the miraculous coming together of our Bible, the acknowledged most incredible piece of literature in all of history. Even though we Christians have the historical and archaeological backup for that Bible, even though we have existence of a very unique being that is acknowledged by most of the civilizations that have ever existed in terms of knowing and agreeing that he existed and there was something really special about him, in spite of the crucifixion and the resurrection of that man, attested to by tons of martyrs and witness and live witnesses, in spite of the conversion of Paul from the persecuted uh, persecuting Christians to um, turning into a martyred disciple, 
disciple of Christ, and 2,000 plus years of a movement that has literally changed the face of the earth in medical, in science, in education, in architecture, and in human care. Despite all of that, the enlightened theist trumps all of that with, I think, I believe, if... And again, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm trying to encourage us that we stand on very solid ground. And you can trust your God. And you can trust your Bible. And you can trust the Holy Spirit. And you can trust history. And you can stand and know that your faith is far beyond reasonable. And it's far beyond the silliness of I think and I believe and if of human beings. I hope that's encouraging to you. Here's the point that I want to make about all of this. With all the knowledge changes in history, with all the advances in science, medicine, and in general knowledge in all of history, with all the advancement in resources and all the awareness of different cultures and thought around the globe, with all the changes that have occurred for the human experience, what has not changed is the vast, vast, vast majority of people trying to define and understand what is God like? Who is God all of history. Throughout history, throughout the world, different peoples, different cultures, different times, the educated, uneducated, the rich, and the poor, people have been searching for the answer to the question, who is God? And what is he like? The Bible records this same desire throughout biblical history. If we look at first among God's people, there's this great prayer from Moses to God at a time when Moses really needs help leading the Israelites in the wilderness. And Moses says, what I think is just one of my favorite prayers. He cries out and he says to God in 33, 12 through 13, then Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring out these people, but you have yourself not let me know who is going to send, who you'll send to help me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, here's the prayer. I pray, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. God has this great call put in front of him. It's an insurmountable thing that he has to do. And what does he say to God? He says to God, you tell me to lead, but I don't know who's going to help me. And then he says, if I've found favor with you, then I got, I got a request. Let me know your ways. Why does he want to know his ways? So that I can know you. Why? So that I can find favor with you. That's the cry of the human heart. Who are you? How do I know you? And how do I find favor with you? These are the cries from the people of God to know who God is throughout the Old Testament. If you look at the Old Testament in people, believers, non-believers, good guys and bad guys, they're all kind of circling around this question, who is the real God? They're looking and trying to discover God. In the book of Daniel, the people of God has, have been exiled into this foreign land. 
The leaders there have tried to take away their faith in their religion and their God. They've taken their instruments. They've taken their scriptures. They've taken their temple, all to try and deter them from following this God that they claim. And yet, when you look at the kings who led them, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and Darius, even though they had endless numbers of their own God, guess what they always want to talk to Daniel and the other guys about? Who is this God you're following? You find it all through it. Even the bad guys are asking, who is this God? The Old Testament is full of people, religions, culture asking, what's God like? What does God think of our struggles? What does God feel about me? Where is God in my questions, my pain, and my suffering? People asking, what's God like? Who is God? Move up to the New Testament, and you find the same thing. Certainly the Jews were searching to know God, but so were the Gentiles, and so were the Romans. Paul once stood in front of in Athens in Greece, in, in front of that big monstrosity that has served all the gods, and I stood on this stone where he gave this message, and he cried out to people as they were going up to worship all these different gods, and he cried out to this, and he said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown god. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance this I proclaim to you. The greatest power on the earth at the time, the Romans, and their endless attempts to find their gods and worship every god, including the sun, and everything under the sun, they're still afraid they missed something. They still don't know if they got it right. So they make this other god just in case. In fact, Paul is arrested because of the Jewish persecution, and he's taken in front of the leaders. And instead of executing him, what does Felix and King Agrippa do? They call him forward and say, hey, could you tell us a little bit about this Jesus and about your God? I'm just trying to show you from the beginning of time and everything, everybody's been asking, who is God? How do I know him? The disciples, the poor, the fishermen, the tax collectors, the carpenters, guess what they're searching for? John 14, 8 through 10, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. The fishermen, the disciples, they're looking. Could we just see God? The first point was that all the people of time across history, culture, and geography have had a longing to know who God is. The second point is, even after Abraham, even after the Exodus, even after century and century and centuries of prophets that God sent, even after the Torah, the scriptures, the entire Old Testament, all of the law had been written, recorded, circulated, and taught. People were still asking, what is God like? Who is God? So God moved into that void once and for all. And Paul describes it this way, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God said, light will shine out of the darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light and the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
God made himself fully visible and fully knowable in the person of Jesus Christ. John describes it this way, John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, which is Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. The literal translation, he made God visible. Jesus then confirms, John 14.7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you, have, you know him and you have seen him. That is a big claim. And it goes across history. You have now seen God. The knowledge and the glory of God, God explained, God made visible, God made fully knowable, only Jesus. Only Jesus gives us what the heart of all people have been searching for all of history. Yes, God sent Jesus to save us from our sins. Yes, God sent Jesus to secure heaven for us. Yes, God sent us to defeat the works of Satan. Yes, God sent Jesus to inaugurate the kingdom. And, and, God sent us Jesus so that we could see him and know him. Forever and ever, we now know how to find out what God is like and who God is. Finally, finally, people, all people can know exactly what God is like, exactly who God is by looking at Jesus. In Jesus, God came near to his creation. In Jesus, God finally came near in an undeniable way. In Colossians, it says one, in 1, 15 through 19, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things in him. All things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, and the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all fullness to dwell in him. In Hebrews 1.3. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. For all time, all mankind had and is striven to know God. God had tried through the scriptures, through revelation, through teachers, through judges, through prophets to reveal himself, to penetrate the hearts of people so that they could receive him. And now through Jesus Christ, God has come near in a way that can reach our very hearts and change our souls because we finally know what God is like. We know who God is. And what does that change? Everything. And I mean everything. <laughs> Through Jesus, we see that we near, need not fear Satan or his demons because God has power over demons. In fact, they fear him. Through Jesus, we see God's power over nature, wind, and seas is confirmed so no natural phenomenon can overcome us. 
And we don't need to be afraid. Through Jesus, God has power over and it, the sea life. And he actually fills an empty net of an expert fisherman and shows us that God will provide for us. Through Jesus, we see God surpass human wisdom by Jesus confounding the leaders, the scribes, and every lawyer that came to him to try and trip him up. And we are set free from the futility of our own minds and our own understanding because we know deep down we don't have the answers. And we see the one who does. Even that list is really about Jesus showing us what God can do. Jesus revealed and confirmed God's power over everything, but even greater than the gift to us is that Jesus revealed God's heart. Not just what God can do, but who he is. Through Jesus, we see God's heart for people in the exact opposite ranking and qualifications of the world. God's love of faith and righteousness, but his anger at empty religion. Through Jesus, we see God's disregard for position and words in favor of our hearts. Through Jesus, we see God's compassion for all who are hurting. Through God's desire to go where he is most needed, no matter how ugly and barren it is that he needs to go to. We see all of that when we look at Jesus. Through Jesus, we see the absolute right of God to judge and yet, we see his unfathomable longing to forgive instead. We see that in Jesus. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up as we close. I saw the power of seeing God, knowing God, seeing God, Jesus firsthand in those sessions in the parents when I was leading in the uh, great mansion camp. I saw what it was like to lead somebody to God by teaching them and leading them to Jesus. You see, when I did it for the first couple of years and I set those sessions, I studied and prepared and I did theological answers. I talked about the fallenness of the world. I talked about the injustice of the earth. I taught them about the hope of heaven. But I knew all that time I was missing something. And one year, it's a huge responsibility to stand in front of these suffering saints. And one year, my heart was breaking, and I was like, God, I don't know what to do. And God said, show them. Don't teach them. Show them. I didn't know how to show them. And he said, show them by walking them through Jesus' interactions with people recorded in the scriptures. Don't teach them about Jesus. Show them Jesus. And so I did. To their question, is my suffering and my child's and my family's suffering, is that God punishing me for something? I walk them through Jesus' interaction and teaching and encouragement to John the Baptist when John is struggling because he knows he's about to die. And yet Jesus said of John, there was no better man born of a woman than John the Baptist. And so I could point to Jesus and say, even really good people, the best, suffer. And Jesus answered their questions. And then Jesus goes on to encourage John. 
He speaks to John in John's language. John was a prophet, and so Jesus spoke to him as a prophet. And he sends him encouragement by quoting Isaiah and says, Go and tell John all that you're seeing. And then he added something else, a personal touch. And this one wasn't a quote of scripture. This wasn't from the Old Testament. This one was just for John. And he said, and tell John, don't stumble now. You're almost there. Don't stumble now. And through Jesus, we see a very personal God. And we see the answer that not all suffering is due to sin. And we see a God who will stay with us through it all. They asked, I love my child and the word is often the world is often repulsed and harsh to my child. How does God feel about my broken child? And I could take them to Jesus healing of the leper. But not just to the healing, to Jesus' touch. They knew what it felt like to be this leper. They have been ostracized by both community and know what it's like to live without community and, in fact, to live without family. Know what it's like to live without human interaction or human touch. And so when you share the story of Jesus about this, the healing, it ministered to them. The touch, that made them weep. Now they knew who God was to their fear. I don't know the Bible. I don't even know about church. Is that, is it that I'm not religious enough for God to help me? I led them to Jesus' dinner party without casts, the scorned, the less than. And looking at Jesus, they learned God does not sit with those who think they are righteous. He feasts with the needy. And these people in Ukraine were among the most needy. And they saw God in Jesus. They asked God how, they asked how God felt about their suffering. Did he even care? I showed them to Jesus entering Bethany with Mary and Martha weeping. And it says the scriptures record that Jesus wept. I don't think Jesus was weeping over Lazarus because he had already said he was going to raise him again. I think Jesus is looking at Mary and Martha and the whole town weeping and the sorrow of the pain. And I think he's weeping because I think he was saying, I didn't create it to be this way. It didn't have to be this way. And God weeps. And through this interaction, these Ukrainian people saw that when they cry, God cries. Story after story, I watched these hurting, hoping, longing people were introduced to God by looking into the face of Jesus. And then I saw the result. The greatest power in the world is not the what of circumstances. It is the who that joins you in those circumstances. After we shared together in that room, nothing, nothing in their circumstances had changed. Not one thing. And yet, as they were introduced to God through the face of Jesus, every single one of them rose and gave their life to this Jesus. Gave their lives to God. The God they had now seen. God had come near to them, not through teaching or even healings. God had come near to them through Jesus. And that's exactly what they needed. And that's exactly what we all need. And we can have it too.
The issues in Ukraine are certainly more acute, but when you dig deep, they're rooted in the exact same questions you and I face every day. Does God really love me? Have I done too much for God to forgive me? Is God with me in my pain and suffering? Is God really enough for the situation for this great fear? We all have questions, and if you don't now, I'm sorry, but you will. Life is hard, and there are struggles along the way. This is why for all of history, the longing of human heart has been to know God. Because if we know God, if we know God is good, if we know he is powerful, and if we know he is here, then we can have peace and we can have rest no matter the circumstances. And don't we all need peace and all need rest? And God sent Jesus to walk, to talk, to teach, to interact with his people so that we would know God is good. God is powerful. God does care. He is loving and he is here. And he's available to me and to you and to all of us. And we can see him any time we need to by looking in the face of Jesus. Because in Jesus... God came near, and only Jesus could do that. Let's pray together. Will you stand with me? Each service, we have a chance to respond to anything that God has done during the service. It doesn't have to be about the message, but for today, some of our prayer team will be up forward. And I guess I want to invite of just saying, if you need a God sighting, <laughs> If you just need a refreshing breath that comes from the presence of God, would you come forward and get prayer? If there's anything in your need, this is not a counseling session. Nobody's going to ask you any questions. This is just a time to put your needs in front of a person and have them pray for you. And so as I pray, I will pray, and then the worship band will pray. Our prayer team will come forward. If there's any need you have for prayer, please come and get prayer. Lord, we thank you for the great gift that only you could give, and you gave it. You answered all the questions of all of history once and for all. From now on, the promise, we know who you are. We know how to find you, and that is simply that we come. We come, Jesus, and we look in your face, and we receive the gift of knowing what God is like, knowing who God is, actually seeing God. Thank you, sweet Lord. Amen.